Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Simone Tagalep Petra, a research fellow at Brugal. I'll have Simone's full introduction in a minute, but first, I'll give the key points of our interview. We discuss the broader research shift from an energy security perspective to how society and politics shapes the energy system. For Simone, the broader focus allows us to address how we can mitigate climate change. With Simone, we delve into the European Union's Green Deal and spend time looking at the new green industrial strategy of the EU. This includes understanding how industry plays a role in the transition with green industry, which is essential for the EU's competitiveness in the future. We then move on to discuss the social impact the energy transition has on communities in the EU and how politics and community involvement is key to the success of the Green Deal. Simone addresses the role that international finance can play to assist developing countries create their own sustainable energy system. And just a note, if you like this episode, please share it and feel free to use it as a resource for your own knowledge, teaching, or research. I, for one, made many of my students listen to past episodes. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. This week we are speaking with Simone Tayala Petra, research fellow at Bruegel. He's also an adjunct professor of climate policy at University Catalica and the John Hopkins University SAIS Europe, that's short, and author of the book Global Energy Fundamentals, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. He has published widely and been interviewed widely, too, about a green recovery in Europe and how to fund the EU's Green Deal. I wanted to have Simon uh, Simone on to discuss both the intent of the Green Deal and what are the potential impacts if it meets its political vision. Simone, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, and you're free to correct me on on anything there I, I might have said. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here with you, and uh, all what you said is perfect. Okay, <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, I wanted to just open up first. Uh, you've, you've done a lot of research. You've been involved in energy. You published a book, uh, which is hard enough, and written it, right, on, on the global energy system. And so you, you demonstrate this, this long, I would say, uh, dedication to understanding the energy system as a whole at a global level and an EU level. But what prompted this interest to begin with? Well, honestly, uh, the interest came up uh, uh, during my early studies of uh, political science and international relations, uh, since the energy sector is a sector in which the interrelations between uh, the state and uh, the private companies are of course, uh, very strong. Uh, the energy system represents the backbone of our economy. Therefore, it is a highly strategic uh, sector. So I initially, um, like uh, 12 years ago, started to, to, to work on these, uh, on these energy issues from an energy security perspective first. And then uh, I think, uh, well, around six years ago, really started to more and more uh, switch my attention uh, from uh, the energy security angle of uh, the energy triangle to uh, to sustainability. And uh, the last years, uh, mainly with my activity at Bruegel, has really been mainly all about uh, you know, the climate policy and the development of it well before the European Green Deal came. And then the European Green Deal came. So, of course, uh, that took uh, completely uh, my attention and my time. Uh, And uh, my research is currently um, really trying to focus on the socioeconomic also implications of of the energy transition. So I work a lot on issues such as green industrial policies, such as just transition, which are the socioeconomic pillars, let's say, of the European Green Deal as well. Yeah, yeah. And and how did, maybe I just backtrack a little bit. Uh, you made this transition from security to more the social, socio-political side now, along with sustainability. And and why did you make this transition? I mean, what, what did you see in more of the social side and the sustainability side that maybe uh, prompted you to move away from security? Yeah. Yeah, look, uh, if you remember the uh, the European uh, Union level, 
the initiative that we had before the European Green Deal was the so-called Energy Union, right? And the Energy Union was designed in 20, 2014, actually, as, uh, as a result of the you know, Crimea <laughs> annexation uh, of Russia, uh, you know, and uh, all the, uh, the security concerns that that episode raised as far as the European gas security of supply was, uh, was concerned, really. Uh, so energy security was the main driver of the European policy making in the field back then. Then uh, I think uh, the European Union took uh, um, important steps to uh, ensure the flexibility of its uh, gas market in order to lessen its uh, overdependence on, on Russia uh, through LNG terminals, uh, the development of uh, interconnections, reverse flows, etc. So that issue, I think, really uh, lost uh, importance uh, in the in the European uh, in the European landscape, which was really important because if you think about the gas crisis of uh, 2006 and 2009, I mean that was really something extremely important, especially for Eastern European countries. But then, as I said, this issue became, in my view, sort of second-order issue. And uh, it's clear that, uh, mean, meanwhile, the climate science made uh, important uh, um, developments. Uh, and uh, I think the 1.5-degree uh, report of the UNFCCC and the IPCC really uh, shaped the debate there and uh, made clear to all that the quest for climate neutrality should be our our uh, main objective and uh, i think uh, um, that was really the the the, the moment in which uh, you know uh, it, it became clear that the new and unique priority here is uh, the one of sustainability and then uh, in 2019 um, the european green deal arrived and really also institutionally uh, signed this passing of priority from security to sustainability at the eu level Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a natural progression, even in the policy yes. environment as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I would say so. Yeah, and and so then we we end up at the at well the the, the green deal and um, the the package or the overall kind of intent of it. Could you actually just describe what is the green deal? What is the European green deal that we have here? Well, I mean, the European Green Deal is, uh, first of all, a flagship uh, policy initiative of the von der Leyen Commission uh, since uh, December 2019. And the primary aim of the European Green Deal is to put Europe on track to reach climate neutrality by 2050, which climate scientists have clarified is the only way to uh, limit the global temperature rise uh, to 1.5 degree uh, Celsius. The European Green Deal, in my view, uh, functions uh, on uh, really two main pillars. One is climate neutrality. The other one is environmental and biodiversity preservation. And then uh, there are two other pillars, which are socioeconomic. One is uh, to ensure that the transition also represents an industrial opportunity. And that's where the issue of green industrial policy comes into play. That's where also sustainable finance and all these aspects comes into play. And then we have another pillar, which is just transition we need to make sure that the transition is just so as politicians say that we leave no one behind no? and there you have two aspects one is to tackle the distributional effects of climate policy therefore to make sure that the climate policy we put in place like carbon pricing etc do not harm the poor more than the rich and i think the gilets told us something about that and then the just transition to core which is re- really a regional dimension which really relates to the need of accompanying the economic transformation of those regions in which, uh, you know, coal industry or carbon intensive industries overall uh, play a very important role. And therefore, you need to retrain people, rescue people once, uh, you know, to, to get prepared for these facilities, these plants, etc., mines to be closed down because the transition do not allow them to keep operating in the future. So this is the European Green Deal. And um, I think uh, the the way we should look at this initiative is like a super reallocation mechanism uh, in our society because uh, uh, the decarbonization process uh, will be overwhelming, will touch uh, um, every single corner of our economies because we will need to completely reshape the way we produce and consume energy. 
and uh, um, this will really lead to you know the close down of certain uh, industries not only energy like fossil fuels or coal but think about all the supply chains for the diesel motor etc and also there are a number of industries steel iron that uh, will be reshaped by this transition and you need basically to reallocate capital and jobs from brown to green. So this is what the European Green Deal is all about. So I would really conceptualize it as a reallocation mechanism in our society and economy. Okay, I really, I really like your description about reallocation, like a reallocation mechanism. That that last part, I think it's it's quite right. So they, so the EU has this. Uh, there's this I like your pillars approach too. actually I just like how you explained it I just want to reflect it back so so we have this reallocation mechanism that looks at 2050 as a that's when we get to need to get to carbon neutral uh, and industry actually has to change dramatically to, to get there and and of course at the same time society as a whole has to change and and specifically those um areas and those communities even at a small uh, scale those also have to be those people have to be helped uh in this transition so we can't leave these people behind and neglect them and maybe the the closure of coal mines in the past kind of is a a symbol and as a learning experience of what happens when when regions are not um, addressed or given alternative um, economic opportunities um, going going forward, which could then lead to resistance for this transition. I, I was just wondering, maybe on the industrial side, because uh, I definitely want to get back to the social side of things. Um, but on the industrial side, um, how, how is Europe uh, and the EU Commission specifically trying to address kind of shifting industry, particularly like even automotive diesel uh, engines, as, as you mentioned, but how are they trying to shift industry into a much more sustainable sphere uh, of business? Well, um, this is uh, one of the major challenges I think we're facing. Uh, uh, the European Commission came up last year with a new industrial strategy that was not up to the job and that we will soon have a new industrial strategy by the European Commission also after pandemic and what we learned, of course, in the meantime. So here the point is that uh, uh, there is a player like China that uh, uh, really managed to, to seize the industrial opportunities of this transformation uh, with solar panels, for example. Now we see also wind turbines and we clearly see for electric cars and batteries. The idea is uh, let's try to develop European uh, supply chains of these uh, goods so that we can create jobs also in Europe, on these industries, which are the industries of the future. Now, so far, due to a number of reasons, the incumbents are always slow to adapt to a new reality. The automotive sector in Europe was on the, you know, was neglecting this issue for a long time. Then only the dieselgate really pushed them to rethink themselves. So a number of, of, of elements uh, led to the situation in which Europe is lagging behind, lagging behind mm -hmm. in the product solar panels, uh, batteries, electric cars, etc. So what can now we do to catch up and to make sure that we also have this manufacturing in Europe, not only in China or in the United States? Well, I mean, uh, governments have a role to play. For example, um, fostering uh, um, innovation. So there is a big discussion here around how should we fund uh, research and uh, development activities? How can we subsidize disruptive green innovation? That's something that uh, I think uh, it's very important. After that, uh, you need to consider how do we make sure that there is a market for green products in Europe? Therefore, we, you can think about, for example, using standards, using public procurement as a way to stimulate the uptake of electric cars, etc. And that's also very important. Then there is also, if you really look at it, also an, ex an export dimension. No? Europe also, European companies also wants to go global. And uh, there is here a case, for example, to make a better use of the European development policy in order to put in place blended finance tools that can really allow the European industry, utilities or clean tech manufacturers to go to emerging markets, developing countries that are strongly uh, rising in both uh, population and um, economic terms in order to find there also new markets to keep growing uh, um, the manufacturing capacity in Europe. So there, there are a number of different elements here. And I think that uh, the first uh, experience uh, we can uh, show that I think it's positive is uh, 
for example, this idea of the Battery Alliance, European Battery Alliance, mm-hmm. is an initiative that now is running, uh, is running well. Uh, it is uh, um, facilitating the collaboration among uh, European companies uh, to develop uh, uh, intra-European uh, supply chains for battery, battery manufacturing. And uh, it's a good example of how basically green industrial policy should be done uh, so the way green industrial policy should be done is the is the one of having a modern approach that really sees an interaction between the public and the private sector in a process in a continuous process of uh, uh, you know collaboration and learning which is the only way forward to get these technologies at the end right because the expertise lies in the private sector but the public sector has a role in set in fixing some market failures and therefore only the combination of the two can really provide uh, at the end the good result mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and uh so it, it's we have the the green deal and then but it's also a, a industrial new industrial policy uh for for the eu to kind of you I don't say unite uh, the different industries in Europe, but but as a to give a direction of this is where we're going, and the EU is definitely putting money up for this. Then aren't they? And in different mechanisms, basically to help fund uh, the research and development and this transition. And one of the areas that that you're writing about too is this uh, is the funding mechanism about this. Could you explain how how they're they're looking about helping industry to to move forward? Well, I mean, uh, one idea, one example is, for example, the um, the setup of the uh, EU Innovation Fund under the European uh, ETS, you know, the Emission Trading System. So the idea is we have a carbon market that now covers our plants uh, in some in some industries in Europe. Uh, um, the revenues we get from uh, this carbon price, which is now uh, going up uh, significantly part of these revenues are utilized to prompt up this innovation fund that companies can assess and uh, uh, co-fund demonstration projects for green technology this is one example another example is the setup of the european innovation council which is designed upon the model of darpa in the united states which is up and running as of 2021 uh, this year, and uh, um, that is a new facility that it was designed to fund disruptive innovation only. So there you really fund innovators that come up with uh, disruptive green technologies, and you give them the opportunity to get to a certain scale to demonstrate their technologies. This is really important because Europe is really lagging behind on these disruptive innovations, both in digital, as we know very well, and in green. So I think these are just two exha- examples of what can be done. Then I think regulations matter. No? So uh, the, the more environmental regulations we have, the more, uh, as I said, the public procurement rules we have for green, the more we can really create a market for these products. So for example, the European Commission with the Clean Mobility Package started to introduce certain minimum requirements over, over the next years for green uh, vehicles in the uh, public uh, procurement of mobility solutions. That's important because if public administrations around Europe start to buy electric cars, uh, that is a seizable market uh, that can really, at the end of the day, create economies of scale and push the price down, which is exactly what you want uh, so that everybody can afford uh, an electric car, which is not the case today because it's way more expensive than, than a normal diesel car. So these, these are the things you want and need to do. Mm-hmm. I, I was wondering, uh, it's not off topic, but it's slightly on, on the side there. You, you mentioned the importance of regulation. Maybe, maybe you could explain uh, a bit more about why regulation can be used to really uh, transform the economy and whole sectors. Yeah, sure. Take the example, I don't know, of buildings. No? If uh, um, regulations are adopted to make sure that all new houses need to respect a certain parameter of uh, isolation, for example, thermal isolation, that is a way to make sure that our building stock uh, is energy efficient, uh, which is a big deal because uh, it allows to cut emissions in the residential sector and our buildings are a main contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. 
and it allows also the development of a new segment of the construction sector around the sustainable solution. So that is a, a, just an example of how a regulation can, uh, can really allow to uh, broadening the scope of the green solutions we have. Mm-hmm. Now, this, of course, uh, should be done uh, in, a, in a careful manner because, uh, and we go back to one concept we mentioned in the beginning, all these uh, measures have distributional effects. So if you force people to do certain renovation activities in their, in their homes or to build their houses according to certain standards that might be more expensive than normal ones, then the poor will be worse off than the rich, of course. Therefore, you need to put in place compensation measures. You need to put in place balancing systems that often go under the name of carbon dividends, if you think about carbon pricing, to make sure that you have a social equality maintained no because otherwise there is a risk that climate policy can enhance social inequality and that's exactly what you don't want to happen mm-hmm. and then, then that brings us to the the social side of, of the green deal and the tr- just transition mechanism uh that that's being put in place as well um because with with changing regulations uh you mentioned like the ets uh system which making uh carbon emissions more expensive so then for example coal is the the big topic right so we have areas where coal mining is going to cease uh coal-fired power plants are going to be shut down and so this this affects whole whole communities and this is probably the the most visible or at least kind of one of the areas most talked about is is the social side of this just transition. I was wondering how does the Green Deal connect with local communities and and why 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 is a big push by the commission to make sure that they're connecting with um community I, I say communities because it draws on some of my research and, and actually it's one of the areas where I think um by, by almost by bypassing the national governments uh, a bigger difference can be made. How, how is the commission tackling this? Well, the idea here, you know, was to recognize upfront this problem and to try to give a solution to it also from uh, the European budget perspective. So the idea is that uh, the commission wanted to, um, to facilitate also the sign up of the more ambitious climate targets by all countries, uh, saying, look, we are aware that uh, some of you will encounter certain problems related to the just transition in certain regions, think about coal mining uh, regions in Poland. So we will make sure to set up uh, a facility, which is the EU um, Just Transition Fund, to accompany uh, the transformation of these regions. So it's an idea, the idea to give support to regions directly uh, in order to, to accomplish their transition, which is something that, by the way, it has been done already before, because if you go back to uh, you know 2008 2009 after that uh, after the great financial crisis the eu set up the european globalization adjustment fund which was a fund to support as, um, companies that were forced uh, you know to 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 shut down and therefore you need to retrain the, these people as a result of the comp- growing competition from china for example if you go back uh, in the history of the european construction back in the 50s there was a European fund for the resettlement and retraining of workers under the coal and steel community, because uh, uh, at the time there was a technological development that allowed many jobs uh, to be out, uh, phased out because the machineries did the part of it. And therefore the EU took care of that uh, of those workers. And that was the inception of the European Social Fund. So this is something that the European Union has done over its history. And now it's just reiterating for this specific problem of the transition. Look, I think the, this idea of the just transition is really also the, to facilitate the politics of, of the transition. Because if you look at numbers, it's not that Poland has a stellar number of coal miners, right? But uh, the sector is rather small, but is very much... Uh, the center of the attention, political attention, trade unions, very strong there, etc. So you need to somehow detonate this, uh, this problem because it ex- before it explodes and uh, really uh, eliminate an argument at the table saying we cannot do the transition because it's socially impossible. That's not true. 
you can take care of these people you can put in place uh, the right social schemes to support them so let's get this right and then there, we have no excuses basically to keep the transition going that's the idea mm-hmm. so what you're reflecting it almost sounds like the transition is not just a technological one <laughs> or an industrial one but rather and and I would even say maybe not even a social one, but rather a political one, right? That the, the politics in in this energy transition that, that we're labeling towards a zero carbon society is actually highly highly political, and the political side of it has to be addressed. Yeah, no, but of course, but it is uh, also political because. Uh, uh, decarbonization is a goal we set in our society. It's a societal goal. So. According to our values, uh, it's important to preserve the environment and the planet. Um, others might not care about that around the world. So it's a societal value that we are putting in there. So, of course, we are giving a political consideration and we are giving ba- political value to this. So uh, it's important to consider that this is not just a technological uh, you know, evolution. That is, by the way, yeah? because uh, uh, if there is one reason why we can now pretty confidently talk about the energy transition and climate neutrality is because we currently have the technology to get there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, this was not possible. Even 10 years ago, uh, talking about climate neutrality or five years ago, talking about climate neutrality would really look like, okay, Greenpeace. Okay. Yeah. Be more and more radical. Exactly. Radical. But now, no. It has become mainstream. One reason is that the climate science is clear that if we don't do this, uh, we get into troubles. But the other reason is technology. I mean, we now have, uh, for example, uh, the possibility of generating electricity with wind and solar at a cost that is competitive with uh, traditional sources. And this is the case because over the last 10 years, the cost of producing electricity with solar declined by 95% and the cost of generating electricity with wind decreased by 80%. And this was the result of massive subsidies put in place in Europe over the last 20 years to subsidize renewable energy, which in turn allowed manufacturers of these equipments to get to the economies of scale to abate cost. And these uh, notably benefited uh, the Chinese industry because, the, uh, for example, the manufacturing of solar panel uh, went completely to China. So uh, China benefited in a way also from the European subsidies on renewable, but that's okay. I mean, we, we are the big, among the big responsibles for climate action. So we should really look at our subsidies over the last 20 years that now are being phased out, of course, as a, as a public good that we provided to the, to the world and allowed to slash the cost of renewable energy technologies that now, for example, developing countries can take up at very low cost. Mm-hmm. And so now uh, it's, it's almost like a stage two where in the past, yeah, there was the subsidy from, from, say, the German government for wind power, for solar, and that had a ripple effect to, to China and lowering the cost for manufacturing or even some would say dumping of solar panels on the European market or American market. But whatever, right? It, it prompted this big push and scaling up of a technology. And then now maybe what they, they've learned from this. And so now the funding is more directed into uh, specific industries, specific, um, I don't want to say regions, but, but specific industries to, to move it to a new, newer level. Yeah, I mean, now the idea is, okay, uh, we have done a big work on renewables. Uh, it's time to move forward. So it's time to subsidize battery manufacturing. It's time to subsidize green hydrogen. We need to move forward to the next technologies that we need because now it's not about generating electricity with renewables. It's about storing the electricity. It's about uh, having hydrogen to get uh, to the carbonize those corners of the European of the economy that electricity cannot reach. Yeah. So now the EU finds itself uh, um, in a situation in which it has to change. The, the, the focus and mm-hmm. uh, we are doing that because if you look around the big hype on green hydrogen etc is, is exactly on because of this issue 
I like I like that. So I mean, essentially, the production of electricity, and we'll just kind of we could even maybe address heat, but let's just say the production of electricity from wind and solar, it has been solved in a sense, right? The cost is is much much lower and continues to decline. So now it's almost like a secondary sector yeah. or a secondary uh, technology, the storage. And, and other factors, the network itself, smart smart energy networks needs to be built out and, and the technology needs to be developed. So this is like the next stage. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, it's, I think, crystal clear that um, uh, what we need to unleash the transition and the higher uptake of renewables in the system is to have a smart grid, you know, is to have a, a flexible system with adequate storage. So this is exactly what we need, because otherwise uh, we enter the risk of having blackouts and compromising the reliability of our systems uh, due to the intermittency of uh, renewable sources. So this is the fundamental issue now, and that's why storage of electricity is like the holy grail of the energy transition. No? So everybody wants to find a way to store this electricity, either through hydrogen, which is a vector, or through batteries, etc., because that's what allows your system at the end of the day to be secure. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what we now need to think about. Mm -hmm. So you brought up hydrogen a bit, uh, and I'm, I'm hearing different things about hydrogen kind of as a replacement for natural gas. Uh, and this is how we, in a sense, uh, transition the gas sector is towards hydrogen in a way, saving the gas sector rather than like shutting it all down. But uh, well, I, don't, I don't know if you have particular uh, insight, but what do you think about the possibility of hydrogen being actually a, a, a strong component of the future energy system in Europe? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I'm often asked uh, this question these days, of course, and I think the answer that I always give is that uh, hydrogen can provide a sensible contribution to decarbonize the art to abate sectors. So there are certain industries that cannot be decarbonized with renewables. Uh, hydrogen can, green hydrogen can play a role there. Uh, if you think about heavy uh, duty vehicles, trucks, or even ships, there might be you know, potential for hydrogen to decarbonize that segment, uh, which otherwise electricity is difficult uh, that over the next uh, years will will be able to decarbonize. Now, the question is uh, which shade of hydrogen you want to, to use, because as you know, there are many shades of hydrogen. People talk about green, uh, blue, uh, gray. I mean, there are different things. It's all about how you produce this hydrogen. So what do you use to produce this hydrogen? Is it... Uh, the uh, renewable electricity that you are storing basically within this hydrogen, or is it uh, the natural gas that you are using to, to produce? Yeah, mm -hmm. so of course, all this hype started because the gas industry uh, started to push for this to try to find a way in the, to, get, to have a role in the transition, right? I mean, at the end of the day. So uh, the ones that own the gas pipelines we have around wanted to push this hydrogen at the very beginning, two years ago, because they wanted to safeguard their, the value of their infrastructure and not to get it stranded in 20 years' time. Now, uh, that is, uh, uh, you know, also underpinning some major studies in the European Union level uh, about uh, the potential of hydrogen, the decarbonization, etc. I think there is no space in the European energy transition for grey hydrogen. Um, if we are to invest, we need to invest straight in green hydrogen and produce uh, uh, these with renewables. Uh, for a number of reasons, a number of reasons being that uh, the grey hydrogen would emit, in any case, a certain level of uh, emissions. Uh, there will be even the need to retrofit the current gas infrastructure. You cannot use the same pipes uh, for natural gas and for hydrogen because the molecules of hydrogen are way smaller and you might really have uh, dangerous uh, results. So the only thing you can do is a blending now, 10%, 15% of the hydrogen into natural gas, but that's not so relevant in contributing to what you want to go in terms of uh, the energy transition. Therefore, if we need hydrogen, we need green hydrogen. And that's exactly where I think all the funding now from the recovery funds, et cetera, should be directed, not to invest in a technology that uh, would only be, you know, useful for some, like, what, 10, 10 years, like a transition. But then you need also to make massive investments in the infrastructure. So let's go straight to the new technology. 
and that will be with us for a long time. So I think in an nutshell that hydrogen has a role to play if green and if only directed to those sectors where it makes sense. So basically, as I said, uh, trucks, uh, uh, not certainly cars because their electrification would work way better and more efficient. Uh, uh, certain industries that electricity cannot reach. So the pathway to decarbonization is electrification. Hydrogen gets where electricity cannot get. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to maybe broaden out our discussion a bit and bring in your, your book and then uh, address COVID and, and mm-hmm. what's happening with that. Uh, so so your book uh, about the global energy, uh, it's fundamental, sorry, I'm getting the exact title here, the energy fund, global energy fundamentals. Uh, what... I want to ask what all the fundamentals. It looks like you you went through uh, like the key technology, your key resources that are being used across the the world. But maybe could you briefly summarize, which is very hard to do for a book. But uh, what was your approach with this book? Yeah, well, basically, I started to to to, to write this book a few years ago because uh, I was teaching global energy fundamentals at the Johns Hopkins University and. Uh, uh, I found difficulty in finding a textbook for my students. It was difficult to find a book which could, in an accessi- uh, accessible manner, explain uh, the technology, politics, and economics uh, um, fundamentals of energy. Uh, books out there are very specialized, uh, either engineering or economics. So I wanted something like broader. I, I had difficult uh, in finding it, so I thought about writing it. And uh, the idea of the book is simply to provide um, an introduction to the global energy system to review the main components of the current energy system and understand where the energy system can go due to the decarbonization process. And uh, then I also have an insight, uh, um, a zoom in the issue of energy assets in developing countries, which I consider to be a major socioeconomic element uh, of primary importance for this country. So the book reviews oil, gas, coal, renewables, energy efficiency, uh, climate change, uh, climate policy, and uh, the energy transition, energy assets. So he does a review of all these issues by trying to combine both the technological dimension, the market dimension, the economics, and the geopolitical aspects, which are, as we know, very strong because energy is highly geopolitical. Uh, and uh, um, what happens in the energy market uh, influences our foreign policy, influences global geopolitics, and that has always been the case and will keep being the case in the future also uh, with uh, with renewables, by the way, because uh, renewables will uh, cut certain geopolitical issues such as the dependency on Russia, on gas, etc. for Europe, but uh, new vulnerabilities will emerge, so the dependency on China for raw materials, etc. So... It's a changing landscape, but uh, uh, I think uh, um, in order to understand these future uh, trends, it's important to understand where we are and how we got there. So I also provide a little bit of history mm-hmm. of the energy But but yeah. why why I mean why folk? I'm trying not to be facetious here or or funny, but why why focus on developing countries when we have developed countries with very big and strong centralized energy systems? What what benefit is there to looking at developing countries and, and the potential there? Yeah, well, I mean, um, the way I see it is that uh, we, we have totally different priorities. No? So the developed countries now look at the climate neutrality, decarbonization, etc., because we are responsible for it as well. For developing countries, the story is different. If you go to Africa, climate change mitigation, I mean, they don't care and they are right not to care that much about that issue because they didn't contribute to the problem. So um, the problem for them is climate adaptation. You know, it's how do we adapt to a changing climate and to the, the big impacts it has on, on Africa, for example. Well, but uh, um, so I don't think uh, the approach here is to go to developing countries and say you need to decarbonize your energy system. That doesn't work. I think uh, you can go there and say, look, technologies now allow you to have a different path of of energy development that we in Europe or elsewhere had because we didn't have the technology. So the back of the problem of electrification lies in rural areas in Africa. You can get to rural areas better now with off-grid solar technologies than by building the grid and centralized or with gas or even coal-fired power generation. So it's a matter to meet a 
challenge, which is lack of access to energy and electricity uh, in a sustainable manner. Plus, if you think about realities like India, for example, there is another important issue, which is the one of air pollution. Air pollution uh, is really uh, in certain areas, in certain mega cities, etc. of these countries, a major problem. We, we know that already, I mean, we have seen in China how important that was uh, the, in the early 2000, uh, in the first decade of the 2000s, uh, uh, the environmental policy in China also because of civil society pressure started to become very strong on air pollution reduction. After 2012, there was a strong policy, the blue sky strategy that entailed the shift from coal to gas and renewables in power generation in cities, Etc. Uh, these are uh, these are this is another issue where renewables can certainly provide a contribution to a more sustainable development of these countries, also for their for the own interest of their population. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's not only climate change mitigation, which is not a priority for them, is uh, local air pollution reduction, is uh, access to energy, particularly in rural areas. Mm-hmm. And how how can uh, developed countries? I mean, you mentioned about uh, yeah developed countries basically saying we did, we didn't have this technology when we were developing uh and they were the leaders in developing the energy system the modern energy system with coal basically and how are we talking about maybe technology transfers or how how can these countries be helped uh in transitioning and and this ad- ad- adaptation that that has to occur well, I mean, uh, the key here is that uh, you, you need to foster investments into these countries, no? And uh, uh, I think uh, climate finance plays an important role here. Uh, blended finance tools that allow companies to invest in these countries by limiting or covering part of the country risk, for example, is a sensible way forward. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, this is exactly what uh, Europe uh, wants to do more and more, and uh, rightly so. So allowing... Uh, uh, you know, supporting the private sector to enter these countries and make investments uh, to power generation, but also this transmission distribution. It's important because uh, otherwise, uh, without these in- international investments, uh, it's difficult to develop the energy system of these countries. Mm-hmm. So climate so, finance, I think it's mm-hmm. the sensible answer. I, I like the topic of climate finance. And so it's here where it's not just... Um, I don't know, not just a company moving or selling their, their product mm-hmm. or their technology product in, in a country, but actually it's maybe an international organization or an international, even just an international bank, right? Providing capital, providing some kind of loan structure or financing uh, for a company and for another country to reduce the risk or reduce the interest rate paid on these loans to, to facilitate this technology. Could you expand expand on that, like like just the the risk profiles and and maybe. No, no, sure. I mean, the, the issue is that uh, when I mean when you are an investor or you are a bank or you are a company and you want to enter a new market, you evaluate risks. These countries that we are talking about in Africa, etc., are characterized by high country risk because you don't know whether the regulatory framework will stay stable or not. You don't know if political. Uh, you know, uh, changes in the country can uh, put at risk your investment. So there is a high country risk and there is also commercial risk. So uh, to um, the possibility not to recover all your cost or to collect, uh, you know, all bills, uh, electricity bills at the end of the month. So this is a problem and this is uh, limiting investments in these countries. So the idea here is if international financing institutions like the World Bank or the European Investment Bank, etc., talk to these governments and say, look, why don't you try to put in place a stable regulatory framework for renewables, for example? We, if you do this, we contribute, we put money and we provide guarantees to the private companies that want to invest so that if something goes wrong, they are covered. If something goes right, everything is okay and uh, they can feel more comfortable about making these investments. Otherwise, they will not do that. And there are plenty of companies that would like to invest in Africa, but uh, have this problem. So that's exactly what blended finance tools, credit guarantees, etc., are there to support this uh, uptake of private investments, which is the only way to get to the sizable level of investments these countries need to their energy assets as well, because the government alone can do little. So it's very important to mobilize international investments in these countries. And that's what uh, I think where 
the, the added value of international organization can really be. By the way, let me also remember that all these countries under the Paris Agreement commit to a certain level of climate action, but the real levels of climate action, the seizable ones, are conditional to external support, conditional targets, conditional to what? To climate finance support. Mm-hmm. As one of the key uh, yeah. areas to... to achieve or actually just yeah. to save our planet would be the ultimate yeah. goal. Yeah. Uh, so we can start to see really uh, how interconnected and how complex the energy system is both globally and within, say, Europe, uh, and then even how communities um, uh, need need assistance to, to deal with this transition. I was just wondering then about the impact that COVID-19 has or maybe has not. You know, now, now it's been like a year of more than a year of just uh, us living at home, but also I think a, a year where habits have changed and we can start to kind of see things settling out basically and what what has changed and what has not changed. And when it comes to maybe this green transition overall, uh, what was the, and this is a very, very general question, so you can take it wherever you want, but what, what has been the impact of COVID-19 and maybe what has it taught us? Well, I think, uh, um, well, first of all, uh, COVID-19 had an impact on uh, emissions last year that uh, slightly decreased, but then we have seen already the rebound and we are back to the previous level. So either a pandemic cannot stop the rise on global greenhouse gas emissions, which tells you the order of magnitude of this challenge we are in front, uh, we have in front of. Then I think the pandemic uh, allowed us to understand, for example, that uh, many of the things we can, we used to do could do could be done differently. So teleworking rather than uh, teleconferencing instead of flying all over the world. Uh, I think uh, uh, this is something that before was not uh, so accepted uh, or you know recognized uh, properly. Now we all understood that we can do that. So I would tend to think that um, we should uh, keep the good part of this experience, this bad experience, and notably this uh, um, behavioral uh, change in a way. No? So this uh, understanding that some things can be done differently. And by the way, these are also more environmentally sustainable. So I think uh, limiting uh, our commutes or our flights uh, while we can do a meeting uh, online, etc. If we keep this good habit in the future, then we can also contribute better to the energy transition by limiting basically demand for energy from tra- for and for transport. Mm-hmm. No, <laughs> no, sorry. Uh, I I, I want to travel. <laughs> that's that's. I, I, I know. I'm I going through withdrawals. <laughs> we all want to travel, but yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe it's not so useful, you know. To I mean, if you have one working meeting uh, and uh, you know you commute for the day, maybe that can be spared, etc. So these kind of things might help. Yeah, no, but, actually, uh, uh, speaking to another uh, colleague, uh, we really at least see that um, you know these EU in in our realm at least EU projects. Yeah, just going for the day for a meeting, th- this type of thing, and and exactly, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, these yeah. these shorter ones. So, um, yeah. and and um, do do you think um, the way the money, uh, for for example, this this recovery fund, I think that, that the EU has put together uh, for COVID nineteen, um, what what type of elements um, is directed towards ensuring it's a it's a sustainable recovery? Well, I mean, uh, 37% of uh, the European Recovery Fund uh, goes to green projects. Uh, what I see is countries uh, focusing a lot on energy efficiency residential sector because it mobilizes uh, the construction sector, creates jobs. Um, investments in the grid, as we said, uh, in renewables, again, in hydrogen. P- countries want to seize the opportunity to create um, a uh, new supply chain for hydrogen, green, for green hydrogen. Uh, so I think uh, these are going to be the key elements alongside, of course, uh, uh, charging uh, networks for EVs uh, and uh, high-speed trains, which could also provide a solution to replace some of the flights we have, right? So I think uh, these are more or less the, 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 the topics that are at the center of the green dimension of recovery plans. And I think these are really 
super valuable uh, occasion to foster green investments in Europe. And uh, the idea of devoting 37% of the recovery plan to this, I think it was a really good one so that governments can really then build on that and further plan their budgets and investments into, into this issue. Mm-hmm. And and overall, then, um, both, I don't know, socially and, and the, the key is the job creation. And you mentioned energy efficiency. And, and maybe we can just tie this all up uh, at the end here is, is what is the role of energy efficiency in the Green Deal? Because we didn't, we didn't quite address that point. And, yeah, sure. and uh, yeah. how, because I, we talked about production of energy, uh, we talked about transportation. And I think this final point about energy efficiency, even just in buildings, right, can have dramatic impact in, in our success for a low carbon transition. Absolutely. And uh, that's, I think, the reason why within the European Green Deal, you find this Renovation Wave initiative, which is an initiative aimed at fostering energy efficiency in the residential sector that really uh, starts from the consideration that if you look at the building stock we have today, around 80% of it will be with us in 2050 in Europe. Therefore, we need to make something about that. Uh, we have uh, scramble to uh, augment the energy efficiency levels of our building stock because the, it comes at a high cost for households etc i think uh, tax credits is the way to go like uh, you know trying to diminish as uh, by providing tax credits that can be also given immediately to a bank and uh, therefore, you might really allow people to make uh, low cost or even zero cost uh, inter- energy efficient interventions at home, because then the bank will recapture the get the money back from the states. So these are the kind of things you want to see to foster energy efficiency in the residential sector. And uh, I think uh, this is important because so far, really, I mean, we have been good at fostering renewables, but less good at fostering energy efficiency. And that's exactly what now we need, because we often say that the first source of energy is the energy we don't consume. And that's real, because if the challenge is to shift the energy mix from 80% fossil fuels to uh, 0% fossil fuels, uh, okay, if we consume less energy, we facilitate that uh, challenge as well. Yes, yes, I I totally agree. I totally, and this is why uh, I think I think when it comes to social issues and energy efficiency and renovation, uh, yeah. the, the energy poverty, for example, it it all is highly highly tied together. And and so I think it's great that the EU Commission is is addressing this, even with the, for example, energy poverty uh, observatory, yeah, mm-hmm, and some other initiatives. So okay, Simone, uh, or S- Sim- I said it wrong again, S- Simone, <laughs> Simone. Uh, thank you so much for, for your time today. Thank you. And uh, what I'll do, so thank you very much. Let, let, I'll you. say that. Thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn.